Greetings and welcome. My name is James White. In the ancient Christian church, there was a man by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. He was going to Rome to be martyred by the Romans, and he wrote letters to churches along the way. As he wrote to one of those churches in the year 107 AD, he wrote these words. There is one physician of flesh and of spirit, generate and ingenerate, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first passable and then impassable, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, why should we be concerned about this very high confession of faith made by a man who was going to his death within a very short number of years after the last of the apostles of Christ died? The reason we should, we should be concerned about this is because of the fact that it reveals to us that the heart of the Christian faith regarding who Jesus Christ was and what he did, the fact that he was very God of very God, that he was the Son of God, that he truly entered into human flesh and that he died upon a cross to bring about the salvation of those who believe in him, was not something that developed many, many years after the time of Christ, but it is the very heart of the Christian faith and has been from the beginning. This man's words recorded for us as he goes to his death, they reflect the very words of the New Testament, showing that there is a consistency from the time of Christ all the way through to this point in history, demonstrating that this truth of the Christian faith has always been a part of what unites Christian people together. Why is this important? Well, because 600 years later, after the time of Christ, came Muhammad and the views of Islam. And in that context, we have been told that the very heart of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is true God of true God, that he was truly a man, but he was also likewise truly God, that the eternal Son entered into human flesh and that he did so to die upon a cross as the atonement for sins. Well, Islam tells us that that is not the case and that in fact, Jesus never taught these things. Jesus was a Muslim. Jesus prayed as Muslims pray. That's what we are told by our Muslim friends today. And he never taught these things. And yet, where did these, these words from Ignatius come from? Where did these words in the Christian scriptures come from? I think it's very important that we understand the relationship that exists between Christianity and Islam. Islam comes over half a millennium after the time of Jesus Christ. Christian faith had been firmly and clearly established before Muhammad uttered his first words of, pro of prophecy recorded in the Quran. And we can know what Christians believed. We even know the, the varieties of Christians that had developed at that point in time. We certainly know the state of the biblical text. We know what the Old Testament looked like at the time of Jesus. We know what the Old Testament looked like at the time of Muhammad. We knew what the New Testament looked like as well. We know what Christians believed then, and then we have Muhammad. Then we have the Quran. And in that most sacred book of Islam, we have statements that are made 
regarding the Christian faith. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this. How much did Muhammad know about the Christian faith? We know that he did not have direct access to the biblical texts themselves in the Arabic language because the earliest manuscripts we have translating the Christian scriptures into Arabic come from around 892, well over 200 years after the time of Muhammad. And so he clearly would not have had access to the biblical texts in their original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and he did not have access to them in his own language. And of course, it is a great point of dispute and argument as to whether Muhammad could read uh, the Arabic language uh, with sufficient uh, capacity to really read any of the Christian scriptures at all. Many Muslims do not believe he could read anything. And so how much did he know? And how accurate is the Quran in representing Christian theology? Now, immediately, I understand. The Muslim says the Quran has to be accurate because it is the Word of God. But think about this for just one moment. If Christianity, as it has developed, Christianity that believes that Jesus is the Son of God, Christianity that believes that Jesus died upon the cross, if that Christianity is false, if that is an excess in religion, to use the words of the Quran, then would not Allah have known exactly what Christians believed at the beginning of the 7th century? And if he was going to reveal his word and his word is going to represent what Christians believe, will it not do so accurately? Are we to believe that Allah does not know what the various religions of our world actually teaches? And so it is a valid question to ask whether the Quran shows an accurate knowledge of what Christians believe. And certainly today, that's a vitally important question. Given the volatility of the relationship between Christians and Muslims, if we are going to talk with one another, if we are going to discuss our faith with one another, there must be a desire for accuracy of representation on both sides. I once did a debate with an Islamic apologist, a man defending the Islamic faith, and I was defending the idea that the New Testament teaches the deity of Christ. And I presented numerous texts from the Bible that, that clearly propound the deity of Christ and explained the relationship of the divine and the human in Christ and so on and so forth. His response was to say that every single text in the Bible that teaches the deity of Christ had been changed, it had been corrupted. And so I asked him, well, what manuscripts do you have? What evidence do you have of this corruption? And he could not give me any manuscripts that, that gave us. Well, there, there are scholars who have said that. Well, what scholars? Well, I can't give you their names right now. No matter how hard I tried, the gentleman could not give me any direct documentation substantiating the assertion. Now, I do not believe that I would have the right to deal with the Quran the way that many Muslims deal with the Bible. I do not have the right to simply speculate and say, well, uh, maybe this is where it came from, or maybe that's where it came from. No, we need to apply the same standards of truthfulness and accuracy in research, no matter whose religion that we are examining. And especially when Muslims and Christians sit down and we talk, and both of us have a command from our scriptures to do so. Both of us have a command that we are to take the claims of our faith and we are to take them to the others. 
and we are to press them forward, and we are to do so passionately. But I believe that we must do so fairly and accurately if we are going to honor the Word of God. Now, I realize that many of those in the audience today probably know a lot about Islam, but as I have traveled and spoken on this subject, I've discovered that many people, interestingly enough, even former Muslims, did not have an accurate knowledge of some of the basic elements of the Islamic faith. And so I want to talk a little bit about some of those basic elements, and then I want to move into a discussion of the fact that Islam, in its most sacred text, in the Quran, denies Christian truth. And since this is in the very texts that define the Islamic faith, especially in Al-Ikhlas, in, in Surah 112, since it is in the very heart of the self-definition of the Islamic faith to deny Christian truth, the question must be answered, do these texts accurately represent what Christians believe? And if they do not, does this not force us to the conclusion that those are not divine revelations, that they have not come from God himself? That becomes the question. But to understand these things, let's begin by looking at the five pillars of Islam very briefly. The five pillars of Islam, the things that define the Islamic faith. Of course, we know the Shahada, the statement of faith that unites Muslims. And it is an assertion, the fact that there is only one true God, Allah, and that Muhammad is his messenger. And I, I truly hope that if, that if by God's grace there are Muslim people listening to what I have to say this day, that you will hear me when I say to you that when you say there is only one true God, Christians agree that there is only one true God. Yes, I'm a Trinitarian. Yes, I believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you must understand, you must hear me when I tell you this, that we do not embrace polytheism. We do not embrace any violation of the repeated emphasis of the Old Testament prophets that there is but one creator God. We are absolute monotheists. We do not believe that God had a wife and that he and his wife had a child. That is not the doctrine of the Trinity. It has never been the doctrine of the Trinity. I know of only one religious group that calls itself Christian that actually does believe that God marries and has children. And they're called the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Christians have, from the beginning, identified Mormonism as a false religion. And so Christians have never had this idea that Allah takes a wife and then has a son, and that's why Jesus is the Son of God. Never. And so when, when the confession of faith, that first pillar of Islam, says there is only one true God, we say yes, there is only one true God. But we say he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, three persons sharing the one being that is God. There is a difference between being and person that must be understood. But right along with that confession of the oneness of God, the Shahada has the necessity of confessing that Muhammad is his prophet. And of course, the Bible tells us that we are to examine anyone who claims to be a prophet. When you go back to the days of Moses, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, we are given specific tests that we are to apply to someone who claims to be a prophet. 
And one of those tests is, do they lead you after a different God? And so the question for the Christian, remembering that Muhammad comes 600 years after the time of Christ, remembering that in the scriptures, Christ has revealed himself as the Son of God, and remembering that, that as we will see, the Quran itself seems to indicate that there is a continuity between the prophets of the old, the Torah, and then the Injil, and now Muhammad. The question is, does Muhammad pass the test of a prophet, or is he leading us after a God that we have not worshipped before? Can he pass that test? Should he not have to pass that test? Did not God give that test in the past? I certainly believe that he did. And so this confession of faith is what, what unites Muslims together. But then we also have the, the salat, the prayers, the prayer, five daily prayers. And in fact, in many languages, you do not ask someone if they are a Muslim. You ask them if they do the ritual prayers because it is the doing of these prayers that is so indicative of what it means to truly be a Muslim. And anyone who has traveled in Islamic countries knows that it is a part of the very culture itself to engage in the prayers. And, and the culture uh, is, is built around these, these times of prayers. Uh, you also have, of course, the concept of fasting. And most people outside of Islamic countries know this only from the month of Ramadan. Uh, the month of Ramadan, well known to people even in Western countries in regards uh, to the Islamic fast and then the feasting in the evenings and the fasting during the day and, and this kind of, uh, of discipline that is a part of the expression uh, of the Islamic faith. And then we have the, the zakat, the giving of alms, a certain percentage that is required to be given as a part of the economic system. Uh, and then finally, of course, we have the fifth pillar, which again is fairly well known in the West. We see pictures, though we rarely know exactly what's going on, of the Hajj, the pilgrimage uh, to the Kaaba in, in uh, Mecca, uh, the circumambulation around the Kaaba seven times, uh, going to Medina, and, and uh, all the things that are involved in performing Hajj, something that the Muslim desires to do at least once in their life. And we see pictures of the many thousands of people uh, fulfilling their obligations uh, during Hajj on, on television. Uh, this is something that Muslims take very, very seriously. These are the five pillars of Islam. And for many Christians, we look at this and we go, well, where's, where's all the doctrinal content? Uh, where's the material that talks about what Muslims believe outside of just that very first statement that there is one true God, Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger? Well, Islam is not like many uh, Christian denominations in that it does not normally have this kind of creedal formulation. There are some sections of the Quran, such as Surah 112, that uh, get close to having the nature of a creedal statement. But Islam is much more related to the how of things, how we do things, the, the prayers and the activities. And, and of course, Islam has this very widely developed concept of the traditions, the sunnah, how we, how we wash and how we travel and, and who we marry and where we live. And all these things are addressed in the broader Islamic traditions. Uh, so that to do those things is what's important to the Muslim in demonstrating his faith. 
Now, I would like to turn your attention to Surah 112, Al-Ikhlas, the purity, the sincerity. Most Muslims will tell you that this is one of the most important surahs in all of the Quran. The traditions tell us that Muhammad likewise uh, held the view that this was a very important uh, uh, surah, that it, it expresses something that truly is definitional of the Islamic faith. It's important to, to define a, a term for those who are not familiar with Islam. When Muslims speak of the oneness of Allah, the taweed, the purity, the simplicity, this in Islam becomes inevitably connected with the concept of Unitarianism. Unitarianism. What does that mean? Christians are monotheists, but they are Trinitarians. A Muslim is a monotheist and a Unitarian. What is the difference between the two? Both believe that there is one being of God. But Christians believe that that being of God, that which defines God's nature, is found fully and completely in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this, this has eternally been so. We differentiate between the word being, which describes what something is, and person that describes who something is. Now, a Muslim is a Unitarian. The one being of God is shared by only one person. And so while in the Trinitarian viewpoint expressed in the Bible, you can have God expressing love within himself. There is community within God where the Father sends the Son and the Father and the Son send the Spirit. That cannot happen within Islam because Allah is fully transcendent. He is Unitarian. And if there is to be love expressed, it has to be expressed outside of himself. And hence, before creation, love could not be an integral aspect of his nature because there would be no way of expressing it. So this is the difference between us in regards to the nature of God. We are both monotheists. We both believe there is only one creator God. But the Christian believes on the basis of all the New Testament teaches, all that the Bible teaches, that that God has expressed himself, has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, with that in mind, let's look at Al-Ikhlas, and let's look at it as, as a statement of faith. In fact, there have been a number of Muslim writers, very well-known, well-respected across the spectrum of Islamic belief, who have looked at Al-Ikhlas, and they have seen it as functioning in this, this confessional manner. And notice what it says. Say he is Allah, the one and only, Allah, the eternal absolute. He begetteth not, nor is he begotten, and there is none like unto him. Now, notice what is said here. Say he is Allah, the one and only. Christians could join with Muslims in saying this as long as we are referring to the being of God not to the persons. In fact, there are numerous texts, especially in the book of Isaiah, that say exactly this. Many times in the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah, the false gods are challenged because Yahweh says, I am the one true God. There is none other besides me. And indeed, at one point, 
uh, Yahweh makes the, the challenge. Is there any other God besides me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. God himself says that he knows of no other true deities. Oh, yes, God knows about all the false gods that are out there. He has full knowledge of all those, those false gods, but he does not know of any other true God. We agree that there is one and one only God. But when that is joined with the idea of Unitarianism, that's where the problem comes in. The next ayah says, Allah, the eternal absolute. And again, we believe that God is eternal. We believe that God is the absolute standard of all things. We do not believe, for example, that the sun came into existence at a point in time that he was begotten in the sense of, as to his deity, becoming the son of God or anything along those lines. And so we agree that God is the eternal absolute. But then the third ayah says, he begetteth not, nor is he begotten. And the background of that, lem yelad walem yulad, is very, very clear. There can truly be no doubt that the Christian faith and the Christian doctrine of the relationship of the Father and the Son is in the background of these words. And then the fourth ayah says, and there is none like unto him. Almost exact same language that is used in Isaiah and Jeremiah to describe God. So please note something. There are only four ayahs in this very short surah. One out of the four 25%, one quarter of this self-definition of Islam involves a denial of the heart of the Christian faith. That's why it's there. Islam, in its own self-definition, denies the Christian faith, coming 600 years after the Christian faith and the coming of Jesus Christ. Indeed, the very words of that third ayah, he begetteth not, nor is he begotten. In the Arabic language, the root there is identical to what we have in the Hebrew Old Testament. In the Hebrew Old Testament, when the, there's a prophecy of the coming of Jesus Christ, it is said that a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And when it says a child will be born to us, it uses that same root, yalad. And it's a normal term for the, the birthing of a child because Jesus truly entered into human flesh. But then it says, a son will be given to us. Is that first phrase, a child will be born? Is that the human nature of Christ and a son being given to us? The eternal son is given to us, the divine nature of Christ? Whatever the case of that interpretation might be, it is very clear that the very same words that Surah 112 uses, and I don't believe there's any reason to believe that Muhammad would have had access to the original languages of Isaiah 9, so it wouldn't have been purposeful. But here, using the very same linguistic roots, Surah 112 denies the very truth that had actually been prophesied by the prophet 700 years before Christ in the very same language. And so it's vital, I believe, for both Christians and Muslims to understand that the denial of the heart of the Christian faith is definitional of what it means to be a Muslim. And that's what impacts our dialogues. 
there can be no compromise on these issues. We have to engage one another and openly communicate with one another and do so in honesty. We do not show respect for either of our beliefs when we try to gloss over these differences. I do not believe that a person can be an honest Muslim and deny what Ali Klaas says. Neither can a person be an honest Christian and not believe what John 1.1 says, that Jesus has eternally existed, or what John 8.58 says, that he is the great I am, or Colossians 2.9 says that he is the creator of all things and in him all things, uh, all that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We can't deny what our faith says, and the Muslim cannot deny what his faith says either. And so we have to come together and we have to apply the very same standards of examination to each of our faiths. And obviously it is my belief that as a Christian, that as I have sought to do that in studying the Quran, in studying the Hadith, in studying Islamic history, and comparing these to the Bible and to Christian history, that what we discover is that the reason for these words in the Quran is not due to divine inspiration. They are due to the misunderstandings of Muhammad in the writing of that book. Now, before someone just takes great offense at that, I must believe this to be true. I can't believe something is both true and untrue at the same time. We have to have the freedom to disagree before we can even begin to honor the truth in examining what the real issues are. Now, Ali Klaas is not the only place where Christian truth is denied in the Scriptures. In our next, next section, we will continue and we'll examine further passages in the Quran that expand upon this denial of the Christian faith, and we'll be able to test whether Muhammad truly understood the Christian faith or whether he did not. Thank you very much.